everybody welcome to the lonely mountain mystics podcast i'm andy and i'm here with stephanie and ben hey hello <laughs> we are uh doing this one remotely so i hope you guys enjoy and uh the title of today's podcast is decolonize my brain and the subject- i don't really know what that means so yeah i'm, I was gonna I'm say, excited for you to yeah, kind of unpack that for me talk about that so I recently finished the book Native by Caitlin Curtis, um, which I can't possibly recommend highly enough. It's an incredible, incredible book. And Caitlin is really unique because she is both an indigenous American and a former evangelical Christian. So in her own experience, she kind of, you know, in her own body, contains colonized and colonizer roots. And she writes this, she writes this, this is a quote from her book. It says, what does it mean to be indigenous and to have ties to the person of Jesus without being tied to the destructive colonizing institution of the church? It is a constant decolonizing. It is a constant longing for interaction with others who, following the universal Christ, as Richard Rohr calls it, can take on the hope of a decolonizing faith. It is sharing space with black people, indigenous people, and other people of color, and letting our experiences shape each other. It means interacting with my white friends, having really difficult conversations, and facing my own privilege in that conversation as well. Deconstruction and decolonization can be partners along with grief and truth-telling. May we learn from this community that we are all called to the bigger work ahead of us so that together we know what it means to return to mystery that has always wanted all of us. May we do this together so that each day that we move on, we are building a future that is made for everyone. So... Colonization, um, if just a simple definition of colonization is the action of establishing control over indig- indigenous people of an area. So obviously for us, that's a huge topic. And especially as Americans who, you know, as the Avit, Avit brothers say so well, are living on stolen land built by stolen people. To tackle the entire conversation of colonization in a one podcast with the three of us is just not going to happen. <laughs> but what I do think would would be um, an interesting place for us to to dive in a little bit would be to talk about the way that Christianity has been a religion that has often historically enabled colonization and currently like how we are seeing that play out. So as, you know, three people who grew up surrounded by and believing in a colonizing religion, what is some of the damage that you saw it doing? I didn't even know that it was a thing. I mean, you know, when I grew up, we still celebrated Columbus Day. Mm -hmm. It's only been the last 
couple of years, I guess, that I've been learning that my whitewashed history is not 100% accurate, that it's told from one perspective and that it leaves a significant piece out of the story. Yeah, I think I, I think I would agree that like what was the damage that I saw it do? I, I didn't growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it do any damage. I just didn't know. I guess there was some, I mean, we know about the Crusades and slavery and colonization on a broader scale, but we never really traced those things back to any sort of faith roots. And even if we did, those things were so far removed from our current reality that it was just a history lesson and that's just part of the story that led us to where things are now, where they're all better. Right. <laughs> right. Everything is fine. Right. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, so I guess maybe a more interesting question might be like, like, how do you see it still here now? Like, of course, grappling with the dark beginnings and, you know, all, all the way leading up to now of American history is important. Like it's an important work to do if we're ever going to hope for something better. Being honest about what was is incredibly important. Like like Caitlin says in that quote, grief and truth telling are such important practices. But uh, how do you see it now? I guess like if you look at it now, now that you are where you are, you know what you know now, w- do you still say that everything is fine now? And if not, why not? No. Everything is not fine. And I, the more I learn, the more conflicted I become inside. So I found out, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, that I can trace my family roots back to a Mayflower passenger. That's cool. That and $5 will get me a coffee at Starbucks, right? But... Then I learn, you know, then I start learning more about colonization and even the museum down in Plymouth, Massachusetts, I think has started to do a good job to acknowledge all of the players in that setting. But we still have such a long ways to go to acknowledge the damage that we did to indigenous people. I was listening to an NPR show on the Trail of Tears and to hear the history about how the Cherokee Nation worked so hard and so well to become, basically to assimilate with all of the settlers that were coming in, but they were not, they were never treated equally, even though they were contributing equally and probably more than that. It's interesting, too. It's so messy because there's so many different layers of who did what and who was treated poorly. I guess for me, looking over my shoulder and like what I see happening now in our world has been one big, huge exercise in bringing things closer to home for me. Mm. You know, like I said, everything, learning about, you know, what little we did growing up felt very distant and far removed. Even if it was a little bit 
less far removed. It was happening down south, or it was happening out west. Like these are not stories that necessarily happened here in the northeast. And so I could remove them even geographically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you get older, the world gets smaller. And that certainly played a part in bringing those things closer. But a lot of the work that's been done to bring these conversations to the forefront has been done because of people like me who, you know, if this work hadn't been done, I would never hear about it. I would never think about it because it it doesn't appear to immediately affect me. Mm-hmm. And so it, yeah, it just doesn't enter my mind. So again, yeah, I think uh, the work that's been done to bring the conversation to the forefront is important work because otherwise it wouldn't get talked about. I even just think about that. There's a quote, um, one other quote from Caitlin Curtis and Native says, the problem isn't that we search for truth. The problem is that we become obsessed with our belief that we hold the truth and we destroy entire cultures in the process. I just think about the, even that culture of rightness that I uh, grew up really thinking was a gift to the world. Like we, it was our job mm-hmm. to take the right answers, to take the right beliefs, the right way of being, the right way of thinking to the world. And I didn't see it as colonization. I would have called it like, you know, the good news, the hope of the world, like, but just realizing that when, when your truth is the only truth, that's an inevitably violent approach because sooner or later, it's going to come into conflict. And you see this happen really with any group of people that's marginalized. It's not the dominant group in power. Their choices are assimilate or somehow, I mean, there's, there were times when their literal bodies were in danger. And if that wasn't the case, it's your acceptance. It's your, you know, can you, if you want to have a a part in this, if you want to have some sense of belonging or identity, I think of the LGBTQ community, like what's the price of assimilation? You know, if your identity doesn't match my truth, then, you know, it's, it just, I, I don't think I ever realized when when I was growing up around it, it's like fish in water, right? Like this is just what is. And I don't I don't think I ever realized exactly how violent it is to assert that my truth is the only truth. It's really a shame that explorers didn't have more of a a curious mindset. Hmm. Yeah, Andy, you mentioned that. Yeah, at one a, point, like uh, being a curious or a fear-based, I think was the distinction. And I believe you took that from somebody. I don't remember where, but do you remember that? Oh man, I mean, I I love that idea. I don't remember the quote. I, what I was thinking of that there's a John Philip Newell quote that talks about like how how different would it have been if like America's first settlers came expecting to find the light of the divine here. How different would that, like, you know, that sense of reverence that, like, if God is in everyone, if, like, the light, if every living thing, every human being is sacred, is a part of, you know, the universal Christ, then 
how differently would we treat it? Like you have to dehumanize them first. You have to dehumanize people before you can commodify them, before you can turn, turn them into people who need to come around to your way of thinking or get out of the way. You know, how different would things be then and now if we like came to other people expecting to find the light of the divine in them, expecting to find a, a wisdom that we don't even fully have ourselves. And I think part of the spiritual exercise for me is not leaving that in the past. Like, how awesome would that have been if that had happened? You're right. And so it's my responsibility to do it now, yeah. even though it didn't happen then, because there's still plenty of opportunity to do it now. It's not like we missed the boat and it can never happen again. No, it's we we see what happens when it doesn't happen, when we don't encounter others expecting to find the divine spark or the universal Christ in them. Yeah. We know how it shouldn't be done and hopefully have a better picture, maybe not a perfect picture, but a better picture of how we can make it happen, yeah. how it can be done. Oh my gosh. And it's, you know, in 2020, it's so clear that this is not over. This is not, right. you know, this is not a thing we of the past. Arrived. No, no. Right. So like anti-racism, decolonization, these are practices that I'm learning. It can't be a passive exercise. There's no such thing as like, just like trying not to be racist. Like you're either pre- propping up the existing system, which is racist or, you know, colonized, or you're being conscious of it and working to create something new, which by necessity is going to aggravate the power, you know, the, the, the existing status quo of power. I'm just curious for the two of you, like where along your deconstruction process did like these sort of thoughts start to become a part of the picture? Like, I guess where along the lines did that realization that like, okay, my faith of origin has been and is a colonizing faith. Where did that happen for you, I guess? I didn't learn about it until I went to Evolving Faith. That's where I saw, that's where I was introduced to Caitlin Curtis Mm. and saw her demonstrate a land acknowledgement a few times. And she brought in a Native American musician to play there. And she talked about revising uh, school curriculums. So she addressed teachers in the rooms and gave them resources for, for changing their Columbus Day and Thanksgiving school curriculums, which is basically where we need to start over, I think. Like when we start teaching things in a more inclusive way, I think that's going to help to foster some inclusion down the road. I think for me, it would have started when I began to equate the modern day version of Christianity with the biblical Roman government. Mm -hmm. I just started to see a lot of parallels. This kind of, you know, join us. Like we create peace because we kill everyone who doesn't agree with us. Christianity very much was that brutal at times. Other times it was a lot more subtle. Yeah. But still very damaging. 
and operating on the exact same principles. And talking with you, Andy, has been a big part of that about talking about like when Christianity got into bed with empire, what changed. And it's so fascinating to go back and see the doctrines that got established at the moment that Christianity became the official religion of the empire. Because now Christianity existed to serve the empire. Mm-hmm. It was now a tool that the empire can use. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me because religion at its best and worst is a storytelling mechanism. You know, so if, you know, the empire has used it in order to exert control over people, it just makes you wonder like what else is possible. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that even what you said just a little bit ago about like you have to dehumanize people is like that's part of what came out of that was mm-hmm. this idea of original sin and you know we are wretched worthless human beings and you're right yeah that's the story that got told and that got embedded is your thought kind of like oh man what <laughs> what could have been the power of a different story yeah, i'm i'm kind of th- talking now Like Mm. for all the people, like, I mean, I'm so inspired by people I see now who are still trying to use their native language of faith in a way that liberates people. Yeah. So Caitlin Curtis, Kevin Garcia, like others who are taking their native faith that they see doing, they either experience doing damage directly to them or they witness it doing damage to people like them. And they are using the story to create a better world, you know, to create a more inclusive world, to create a world where it's, as Caitlin said in that first quote, you know, what does it mean to return to a mystery that has always wanted all of us? Um, we're building a future that's made for everyone. Almost like it, it, it's there. It's always interesting to me to find people who are refusing to just let the empire have the story. I learned recently about um, a young person. I don't know, probably in their twenties. Do you know what a a native two spirit person? Yes, is? basically a transgender Native American, right? And there's a young person up in Maine that I think graduated from Dartmouth College and then returned back to a native um, reservation in Maine, I believe, and ran for office and recently won. Wow. Um, I think it's a Maine, um, like a state representative, something like that. Um, And so I so admire, like you said, not accepting the story that the Empire is telling and basically creating a new path. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote that, it's a Richard Rohr quote, but I heard it on the Robcast. And the quote goes something like, there are two ways of or two paths to being a prophet. The first is to tell those who are enslaved that they can be free. It is the difficult path of Moses. The second is to tell those who believe they are free that they are in fact enslaved. 
it is the more difficult path of Jesus. Wow. And when you talk about like the status quo and society, like, and you know, the people who are trying to tell this counter narrative that is saying like, no, look, you think you're free, but you're really not. You're really a slave to this story that has enslaved you from the beginning. Yeah. When I even considered doing this as a topic, it's obviously, it's so daunting because it's so, there's so much to it, but it's like, I don't know that there's too many things that are more important to me right now. And I just wanted to invite other people into the conversation and almost like get the conversation of going of like, how, in what ways, in what ways can we decolonize our brains? Like, how do we turn the lights on and notice what's happening around us and start to create different narratives that, you know, that are better for us and the world? Like you're saying, like, we're like, I, I think I would, I would think of myself as someone that Jesus is talking to, like, oh, you've thought that you were, you know, you thought everything was fine. Everything's not been fine this whole time for others and for you because we're all connected andy i'm curious what your background is like when did you become aware of this colonization and why is this topic important to you yeah you know i think actually reading shane claiborne's book like late in high school it's not the exact I mean, I think it is actually kind of, it's this, it's just, he had to examine what was going on in Iraq at the time where America was showing up to quote unquote, make things better. And he was on the ground seeing that that wasn't happening. Then as the more you talk about that, you just witness people getting really defensive and using their faith to prop up the American agenda, which made me skeptical. I guess it made me skeptical of the validity of a faith that would prop up an empirical agenda. And then, I mean, through different teachers learning over time, relearning American history. And then like, I think the biggest, some of the biggest personal impacts was just like witnessing the silence. I remember this Sunday that was right after Philando Castile was killed and just nothing was mentioned, nothing was acknowledged. And you just start to like over and over realize that there are moments where this faith that seems so centered around advocating for people on the margins is like failing to live up to its reputation. You know, there was like, I know there's like a prominent leader you know from the same church who would say from the stage like i won't talk about the issues you know only just you know talk about people but i won't talk about the issues and it just became so clear to me that it's like you we can only say that when we hold when we hold a position of privilege like the issues are people they are human beings the issues are important to people yeah, because it's they they're made of people. They're issues because they're people. It just became clear to me like over and over through these small experiences that 
somehow this thing I was a part of was like deeply disconnected from a part of me that I, I think it was deeply disconnected from the Jesus character I loved, you know, and the idea that we are here to stand in solidarity with the brokenhearted to create a liberated future where there's more inclusion, where there's more access, where it's not, you know, the powerful and the powerless, but there's like a power with together. That was really important to me. So I think it just became clear to me that this that's not what we're doing. <laughs> that's not what we're doing here. And that was actually that was actually a pretty pivotal part of like my stepping away. One thing I'm curious about is for people who are kind of listening in and they've done some relearning of our history, they've felt a discomfort with where evangelical Christianity has like put down its feet. What are some things that you guys are that have maybe been like life giving to you that you've felt cut off from in the past? Like what things from perspectives outside your own have been giving you life or like how are you finding ways to decolonize your own brains if you would? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to say that it's going to be weird to say that this is like giving me life, but it, I think it does help decolonize my brain is very much whenever I'm having a conversation that's around faith, around Christianity in particular, I just, I always see myself as the Roman in the story at this point. That's just the person in the story that I identify with. And I think that's done a lot of reframing of stories that I grew up with, stories that were told to me in a certain way that I think, yeah, I was just on the other side of, right? I was the one with the privilege. I was the one with the power. I was not the one who, yeah, was being actively oppressed or had empire bearing down and threatening my very existence or way of life. I had all the power. And to read those stories that way now, though I don't read them often or don't interact with them often anymore, when I do interact with them, it's it's from a completely different standpoint. And even as I look at our nation as it stands in world affairs, I very much consider ourselves to be the new Roman Empire, as it were, right? The new global powerhouse, the likes of which the world has never seen before. And that causes me to think very, very differently about how we conduct ourselves locally, right up to globally. So I think very differently about how our country interacts in the world now than I did. And that's a yeah global example. And then I think very differently about how I, as a result, need to conduct myself on a much smaller scale in just my circle of influence, limited though it may be. I like to go for walks in the woods. I like to go for walks in the woods with my dad when I was a kid. And so for me, it's more of a childlike interaction with nature and a curiosity 
and it's something that I've been appreciating more and more. In fact, when I, <laughs> when I wasn't going to church on Sundays, a lot of times I'm out walking in the woods. Yeah, it's kind of a spiritual practice. And so a lot of times when I'm walking in the woods, I'm thinking about like, what was it like three, four hundred years ago to walk this land? And how hard was that for the people, for the indigenous people that were here and their relationship to the land and also for the settlers that were coming in and trying to figure out how to survive? Yeah, I like the woods. I think I've like, I think my, some of my practice has been like trying to change the voices I'm listening to. So whether it's my book list or my music list or my Instagram feed, trying to make sure that not all those people look the same or identify the same. And that has like changed my life. I mean, that has just been like some of my favorite music and some of my favorite authors now, they just don't have uh, like an identity position that's the same as mine. And so like the amount that I learn from them or the amount that they're able to lead me is it's like, it's enormous. And I think it just, um, it like keeps me in a place of being aware that like the world is a, wide place a really diverse place and a really beautiful place there's so much i don't have any idea of and i just i think it like putting myself in the position of like a student and giving myself permission to just not know like so many things i don't know uh, i think that's been a gift to me man you make me think of i would be super interested in like a discussion on why it's so difficult for people to take that position of wanting to learn and for people to just be so entrenched. I know there's actual science around like why that happens. It's just so fascinating to me because that just seems so freeing to take that kind of position, to just sit and listen and learn and to not have the pressure of having all the answers. Yeah. Wow. Well, all yeah, I don't have. Uh, yeah, it is. I don't have any other listed questions. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I don't know if it's. Uh, I feel like you know, it's a topic that spans a lot. So, I think we covered. We moved a lot, but I think what else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs>